Amen. A British newspaper once ran a contest with the winner receiving a substantial cash prize. The money went to the best answer to the question, what is the shortest way to London? The winning answer was, the shortest way to London is with good company. Long trips are a lot more fun when you travel with friends. And the same is true on our journey through life. As I look back on my life, what matters most to me isn't my accomplishments, but the friendships I made in the pursuit of those accomplishments. You can measure a person's wealth by counting their friends. Yet true, lasting friendships require commitment and hard work. Actress Susan St. James once gave the following description. She said, friendship is like putting on pantyhose. You get one foot in and then the other, and you wiggle around and tug until you get it right. Then pretty soon you say, I love these pantyhose. They fit. Rest assured, I have zero experience squeezing into a pair of pantyhose. (laughs) But I have an awful lot of fun watching my wife. And I've seen that it requires flexibility and adjustment, some give and take. And it's only after quite a bit of effort that they truly fit. And the same is true with friendship. Paul the Apostle demonstrates the value he places on friendship and his willingness to work at those friendships in this letter that he writes to a pal named Philemon. Well, verse 1 begins. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. There are Christians who have a ministry of writing letters to prisoners. Well, the book of Philemon is a letter from a prisoner named Paul. He was in Rome. Paul was being incarcerated for his faith. He was awaiting to stand trial before Caesar Nero. Paul wrote three other letters during his lockup, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Along with Philemon, these four letters are appropriately called the prison epistles. The letters to Philemon and Colossians were delivered by Paul's friend Tychicus. Now Paul writes to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. And notice Paul's friendship with Philemon was forged as a fellow laborer for the Lord. You know, you could call them old army buddies. They fought many a spiritual battle together in the Lord's army. You know, they say soldiers, men who fought shoulder to shoulder, who shared a foxhole together, who've been on the front line side by side, forged deep and durable friendships. There's something about the rigors of combat that draw men together. They learn to communicate and stay united and trust each other and cover each other's back. And I believe the best way to make friends is to get involved laboring for the Lord. To share the joys and jolts of serving the Lord together with another person creates a special bond. Real friendship develops. Well, this letter was also addressed to the beloved Aphia, probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. He seems to be Philemon's son. So there's a family here to which Paul writes. And apparently the son followed in his father's footsteps. He too was a fellow soldier of the faith. 
again, he writes, to the church in your house. Philemon may have been a wealthy man with a large, spacious home. Apparently, he opened its doors and offered his house as a meeting place for the church at Colossae. Philemon and his family were hospitable to the saints. We need to realize that the church met in homes, the homes of its members, for the first 275 years of its existence. Its most successful period of growth and expansion occurred when fellowships of believers were based in homes. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47 describe the habits of the infant church in Jerusalem. It says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. But notice the combination. The believers were meeting in the temple or in a large corporate gathering, yet also they were meeting from house to house in more intimate, in more personal settings. Always remember, nowhere in the New Testament does the word church ever refer to a building. Nowhere. We, the people, the followers of Jesus are the church. Like the fellow who complained to the pastor that the kids were wearing their hats in the sanctuary. The pastor corrected him. He said, no, the sanctuary is wearing a hat. <laughs> it's believers, not bricks, that make a church. Oh, we enjoy meeting in a comfortable building, but a building isn't a luxury. Or it is, I'm sorry, the building is a luxury. The type of building we meet in is what's irrelevant. Jesus reiterated this in Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. He's there in the midst of his people. Always remember, a building is a convenience, not a requirement. And don't miss the hospitality that was shown here by Philemon and his family. They opened their home and their lives to a church. A Sunday school class might have met in Archippus' bedroom. Aphia cleaned house constantly. Ladies used her kitchen for potlucks. And yet they gladly opened their home to the church. Some of you don't remember, but our church started in a home. My home, Kathy and, and my, our home, was our initial gathering as a church 40 years ago. And it put a definite burden on my newlywed bride, Kathy, that's for sure. People were coming and going constantly. There were Bible studies and meetings and hanging out all in her home. Kathy shared her house with the church, and she did it gracefully and gladly. I have no doubt that in her mind, as in Philemon's mind, his family included his church. Does your family include your church? The church in Colossae was one big extended family. And I believe this is the kind of hospitality that will win the world. This is especially vital in an age like today where the extended family is practically non-existent. Modern mobility has broken up families. You know, we used to be surrounded by mom and dad and grandpa and grandma and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. A family network that provided support and encouragement and expertise. Today we miss this sort of community. 
And as a result, a lot people are a lot more lonely than they should be. People today feel as if their lives don't really matter to anyone else. That's a tragedy. Hey, if you haven't plugged into a church, you need to do so, and do so soon. We all need an extended family, a group to which we can belong, a place where we can call home. God didn't design any of us to live life alone. Isolation isn't healthy. God wired human beings for community. He desires us to live in meaningful friendships with other people. In fact, did you know that the word hospitality is a spiritual gift? Did you know that? When we think of supernatural gifts, we usually think of healing or prophecy or miracles. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, it adds hospitality to that list of spiritual gifts. It says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We need folks in our church with the gift of hospitality, with a supernatural knack for making other people feel welcome and including them into our group. Well, in verse 3, Paul greets Philemon and family. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. Now notice the Apostle Paul, he prayed for his friends. In almost every letter he wrote, he let his friends know that he was praying for them. You know, did you know the most important favor you can do for a friend is to pray for them? And the second most important favor you can do for a friend is to let them know that you're praying for them. What a comfort it is to have someone care enough about you to intercede with God on your behalf. He says in verse 5, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Paul was a good friend to Philemon, but Philemon was quite a friend himself. You know, it's one thing to display love and faith in the Lord. It's quite another matter to display love and faith toward another person. And yet this is what constitutes true friendship. It's finding someone who loves you enough to risk trusting you. He or she is willing to go out on a limb for you. It's difficult to trust another human being. Friendship makes you vulnerable. Inevitably, you'll be disappointed. But the benefits of a real friend are worth the risk. Philemon and Paul had learned to trust each other in in the midst of the battles that they had fought. They knew from firsthand experience they could count on the other to cover them, to have their back when the bullets started to fly. You remember Tonto's name for the Lone Ranger? The Lone Ranger filled up my childhood with wonderful memories. But do you remember the name that Tonto had for the Lone Ranger? You remember? Kimosabi. Kimosabi. And do you know what it means? Faithful friend. Kimosabi. Faithful friend. Are you a Kimosabi in Christ? Are you a faithful friend to the people sitting around you? Hey, the Lone Ranger and Tonto were in so many scrapes together over the years. Through all their episodes, they learned to depend on each other. We all need some chemosabis in Christ. Verse 6. 
that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. See, Paul prays that other people will notice Philemon's godly life so that his sharing of the gospel will become more effective. Paul knows that a life full of good works is always more impressive than a mouthful of good words. You know, sometimes we share our faith with someone and we just assume they should listen. But first, we need to earn the right to be heard. Be a friend. Show your love. Then they'll be more inclined to listen to your message. He says, for we have great joy and consolation in your love. And I love this. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Apparently, Philemon was a winsome guy. He was a refreshing person to be around. Anyone close to Philemon benefited from his friendship. He radiated joy. I'm sure he was a great encourager. You know, there are actually two types of people in the world. First are those folks who are enthusiastic about life. They love living. They're optimistic. They encourage you to have the same attitude. They're always looking on the bright side. They're full of faith and hope. Every time you're around this kind of a person, you get your spiritual battery recharged. You walk away blessed. Oh, but they're people with the opposite kind of attitude. They're the spiritual leeches, the bloodsuckers. They're spiritual scavengers. They act like parasites. They feed off of other people. They tend to drain your battery rather than recharge it. These folks are always pessimistic and complaining and negative. Invariably, they focus only on themselves. And frankly, you hate to be around them. They walk around as if there's a cloud of gloom hanging over their head. I got to ask you, what kind of person are you? A light or a leech? Hey, what good did it do to be grouchy today? Did your surliness drive any trouble away? Did you cover more ground than you usually do because of the grouch that you carried with you? If not, what's the use of a grouch or a frown? If it won't smooth a path or a grim trouble drown, if it doesn't assist you, it isn't worthwhile. Your work may be hard, but just do it and smile. You know, it's been said, a long face will do a lot to shorten a list of friends. I have no doubt Philemon had many friends because he was a good friend to have. You know, I found you can make more friends in two months by being interested in other people than you can in 20 years trying to get other people interested in you. Once there was a man, he made scores and scores of friends by changing just one word in his vocabulary. Just one word. For years, every time he heard somebody make a comment, he responded, Ah, baloney. Finally, he replaced baloney with amazing. Now, whenever someone makes a comment, he responds, Amazing. And he has lots, a lot more friends. Did you know there's actually a vitamin that you can take that will produce friendships? Did you know that? B1. <laughs> B1. Yep. There's an old saying, I went out to find a friend but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend and friends were everywhere. Verse 8. 
Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Apparently, a divine appointment had taken place in Paul's prison cell. Has God ever booked for you a divine appointment? You just happened to bump into a person you weren't expecting to see, maybe haven't seen in a long time. It seemed accidental at the time, but later you realized that God had actually arranged the encounter. You know, without being aware of his intervention, God had orchestrated a divine connection. You know, the rabbis have a saying, coincidence is not a kosher word. It's true. There are no accidents with God. Realize Onesimus had been Philemon's slave. And any time we think of slavery, we recoil in horror. One of the pictures that sticks in our minds is the cruel Egyptian taskmasters who built their pyramids on the backs of the Hebrews, forcing the Hebrew slaves to make bricks without straw. Or we think of defenseless Africans being packed onto crowded slave ships, then taken to the New World by white land, sold by white landowners and European traders. Plantation slavery was shockingly evil, totally reprehensible. Today we hear of cruel and evil men who make slaves of young girls and employ them in sex trade. And we should do all we can to end this evil in our day. Yet in some cultures, slavery was a far more benevolent practice. In fact, in ancient Hebrew society, slavery actually served a constructive purpose. It was an alternative to debtor's prison. If you fell behind financially, you could work off your obligation. Rather than file bankruptcy, slavery was a way you could climb out of an insurmountable hole. Philemon was not a vile, exploitive slave trader. That's not what he was. Paul commends him for his love and his kindness and his faith. He was a Christian businessman, and he was helping a neighbor pay off a debt that he couldn't possibly pay off on his own. He was helping Onesimus regain his financial freedom. But Onesimus had failed to appreciate Philemon's concern. He had begrudged his opportunity. He had copped an attitude from day one. Onesimus could always be counted on to poison the soup, so to speak. He stole from his boss. He worked as little as he could. He was a rebel-rousing troublemaker. Finally, he jumped ship and ran away. Onesimus flew the coop. He wanted to get as far as possible from all that was familiar. So Onesimus boards a boat, and he sails 900 miles from the country village of Colossae to the big city of Rome. There he figures he can get lost in the crowd, or so he thought. But a strange chain of events occur when he gets to Rome. Imagine one night, this haughty Onesimus, he strolls into the local hooters to celebrate his newfound freedom. He downs one too many beers and makes a pass at one of the waitresses whose boyfriend happens to see him. 
He ends up in a brawl. He gets arrested by the cops, tossed into jail. The next day, Onesimus, he's shaking off his hangover when all of a sudden he opens his eyes in irony of all ironies. He is in the same prison cell as Philemon's buddy, Paul. The story reminds me of three college students in Key West. After purchasing some pot, they found a secluded cluster of trees next to a big building. They thought that no one would see them smoking their stash. What they didn't realize is that they were sitting under the air conditioning intakes of the local police station. (laughs) Inside, the cops noticed heavy marijuana fumes coming through the vents. The students were busted. They tried to hide from the authorities. Instead, they ran right into them. And this was Onesimus. He tried to run from his responsibilities. Instead, he ran smack into them. You can imagine what happened next. God used his servant Paul to break the runaway's rebellious heart. And by the end of the morning, Onesimus had seen his need for Jesus and had opened up his heart to the gospel. As Paul puts it in verse 10, Onesimus, I have begotten while in my chains. Paul had a new spiritual son. Onesimus had been born again by God's spirit. That's why Paul now writes to his buddy Philemon and asks him to take back Onesimus no longer as a slave, but now as a brother. But what about Philemon? You know, the story has a happy twist for Onesimus. But he was wrong to run. He had a debt to pay. Onesimus had an obligation to Philemon. In fact, his A-W-O-L actually made his situation worse. For under Roman law, a runaway slave was a wanted man. The master would register his name and description with the authorities. If he was caught, he could be sentenced to death. There's actually the record of a a man uh, in the Roman Empire who, upon retrieving his slave, actually threw him into a pool of man-eating fish. Paul loved Onesimus. He thought of Any thought of harm coming to him was tough for Paul to swallow. And so he takes up a scroll and a quill and he goes to bat for his new friend Onesimus. Paul appeals to Philemon to take him back. But notice how Paul makes his appeal. We're going to read about it. He doesn't use his authority. Instead, his appeal is based on love. Once Dwight Eisenhower was explaining two types of leadership, he put a string on a table and he pushed one in. He failed to move it where he wanted, but then he pulled the string and he controlled it precisely. And he said, people are like strings. Folks don't like to be pushed. They respond best to love. This is why Paul didn't push Philemon. He pulls on his heartstrings. Paul could have ordered Philemon. Notice he calls himself Paul the aged. He was 30 years an apostle. He carried some clout. Paul was a spiritual heavyweight, yet his style wasn't pushy. He wanted Philemon to receive Onesimus, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He wanted to touch Philemon's heart. Be careful when you push a friend. Be careful when you start demanding of your friend. You never get very far ordering people around. 
When you begin to push and force people and figure they owe you the old you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours routine, that's not the Jesus style. A true friend relies not on browbeating or guilt trips or pressure tactics or paybacks, but on love. Learn to love with no strings attached. The best way to preserve a friendship is to avoid forcing a friend. Well, Paul continues his appeal here in verse 11. He says of Onesimus, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. And if we were reading in the original language, we would notice immediately the word play. For in the Greek, the name Onesimus means profitable. Paul is saying that Philemon's slave has not been very Onesimus. He's not been very profitable in the past. In fact, he's been more of a headache than a help. But now Jesus has made him a real Onesimus. Jesus takes unprofitable people and makes them spiritually profitable and productive and fruitful. Verse 12, he says, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Paul loved Onesimus. He was his new friend. Philemon's slave was now important to Paul. And Paul would have liked for Onesimus to stay in Rome and assist him in the ministry. But it was right to send him home. Onesimus had an obligation to Philemon. And part of repentance is fulfilling our responsibilities. If Onesimus were to help Paul, it would need to be Philemon's choice. Once Onesimus returns to Colossae and makes things right with his master, then Philemon can decide what's next for Paul's new friend. I think it's interesting to note that Paul's concern, his, Paul's concern that any help he receive be voluntary. Important to notice that. Any help he received needed to be freely given, not out of compulsion. And this should be true for all our gifts to God. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 reads, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to serve Him and give to Him from our hearts. Not because we have to, but because we want to. God loves a cheerful giver. When we do for God or give to God with a grudge, He considers it a tainted sacrifice. You know, we learn from the Old Testament that God was insulted when the people offered him less than their best. God expects the pick of the litter, the first of the flock, the best gifts are prompted by love. And so Paul continues, verse 15, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Philemon should see the hand of God in this turn of events and see his slave Onesimus in a new light, no longer a slave, 
but now a beloved brother in the Lord. You know, it's interesting that the church in the New Testament made no formal attempts to abolish the institution of slavery. People wonder about this. They didn't adopt a political agenda or become social activists, nor did they campaign for governmental change. Certainly, most examples of Roman slavery were horrendous and needed to come to an end. Such slavery was cruel and immoral and anti-Christian, but you never see the church out picketing the slave markets. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 instructs new believers who were slaves to remain loyal slaves unless they were freed. You see, our problem is our modern thinking. In modern times, we think that everything can be cured through legislation. We assume that social change occurs when old laws are stricken from the books and replaced with new laws. But let's admit, though there's no longer slavery in our society, how are we doing on racism? See, no set of laws can alter the human heart. And this is what the early Christians realized. Problems like slavery and abortion and poverty are just symptoms of deeper spiritual issues. If sin is only dealt with on a social level, the problem won't be solved. It has to be dealt with on a spiritual level, in the heart of the individual. And rather than rely on a political process or a social protest, Paul knew the best way to change people's hearts was to preach the gospel and to rely on God's spirit to effect the change. Christianity wiped out slavery. It took a while, but eventually wiped out slavery because it changed people's hearts. It put love in their heart rather than hate. Of course, Paul didn't live in a democratic society, but he didn't even try to abolish slavery in the church. Instead, Paul relied on love. He knew legislative power was like a wet noodle compared to the power of love. As I said earlier, slavery has been abolished on the books for a while now, yet humans still oppress other humans. Happens every day. Bigotry and exploitation and cruelty still abound. People are supposedly free still get exploited. They still get controlled and manipulated by folks who are smarter or more powerful. The problem will be with us until the root of sin is uprooted from the heart of man. Here, Philemon is encouraged to accept him as a brother, not a slave. The change occurred in Philemon's heart as it had in Onesimus' heart. But there's even a deeper lesson here in this wonderful story. There's a symbolic spiritual message in Paul's plea to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. For just as Paul interceded for Onesimus, Jesus intercedes for us. For in a sense, we are all runaway slaves, unprofitable to God. In Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Philemon, he wrote, All of us are Onesimuses. We departed for a while, but only to be received back forever. For no, and no longer just as slaves, but more now as brothers of our Lord, we're now joint heirs with Jesus. Certainly, we're still slaves or servants of Christ, but Galatians 4 teaches us that we're more than just slaves to God. We're His sons. 
Our place is not only at the master's feet, but around his table. We're his kids, and he wants us to enjoy his presence and gobble up his provisions. I love how Paul intercedes on behalf of Onesimus. In verse 17, he tells Philemon, If then you count me as a partner, receive him. The Greek word means receive him into your family circle. Receive him as you would me. Paul wants Philemon to treat Onesimus as family and actually treat him as he would Paul. And then verse 18, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Paul will pay any damages. Whatever Onesimus owed Philemon in debt or lost revenue, Paul would pay from his own wallet. Paul loved his friend enough to put his money where his mouth was. He'd sacrifice a few bucks for his brother. Notice what Paul did for Onesimus is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. See, mankind has two problems. First, we cannot live up to God's standard. We lack the righteousness. Second, we cannot pay our debt of sin. You can think of it this way. On the asset side of life's ledger, we lack enough merit to gain God's favor. And on the liability side, we owe far too much to ever pay off on our own. But Christ, the accountant of grace, has the answer. For in verse 17, he tinkers with the asset side. He says, receive him as you would me. Just as Paul went to bat for Onesimus, the Father in heaven has promised to accept us just as he receives his own son, Jesus. He adds to us the wealth and righteousness and stature of Christ. He puts that to our account. Now when I approach God, I'm assured of his acceptance because he treats me as he treats Jesus. I'm received into his family circle. I can approach the throne of grace boldly. And then verse 18, Jesus works on the liability side. If he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. For just as Paul agreed to cover Onesimus' debts, Jesus promises to cover our spiritual liabilities. On the cross, Jesus placed our sin on his shoulders. He took over our payments and cleared all of our debt. Jesus' last words on the cross were, It is finished. In the original Greek language, the phrase means, Te telestai. It was an accounting term seen commonly in ledgers of Jerusalem businesses. It meant paid in full. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, all that needed to be done was done for you and I to be saved. The story of Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon paints a beautiful picture of the salvation that Jesus has offered us. And then verse 19, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. Paul's signature at the bottom of this letter doubled as a promissory note. He puts the transaction in writing. He wants his promise to Philemon to be legal, so he signs it. And this is why Jesus came under the law. This is why he went to the cross and paid sin's penalty. This is why our debt couldn't be glossed over. It all had to be done legally. Sin had to be blotted out and righteousness imputed according to the proper spiritual legalities God does his business by the book. That's why his signature is on our salvation. And Paul adds, I will repay 
Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. And here Paul proves that he's still human. For in verse 19, he basically contradicts everything he's just taught us. He finally throws his weight around. Just in case love's not going to prompt you, Philemon, to do the right thing. Remember, buddy, you owe me one. In essence, Paul is saying, remember, Philemon, old buddy, you'd be going to hell if it wasn't for me. Apparently, Philemon owed his salvation to the ministry and preaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul is reminding his former convert that he owes him. And we probably ought to excuse Paul for this one example of heavy-handedness. All in all, he handles the situation pretty delicately with tender, loving care. I've heard it said, a friend is someone who can step on your toes without messing up your shine. I think that characterized the friendship Paul showed Philemon. And then verse 20, Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. 1 Corinthians 13, you know it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Paul expected Philemon to do what was right. You know, we all need someone in our life who believes in us, who has high expectations of us. Those expectations inspire us to do our best. It's been said, a friend is someone who thinks you're a good egg, even though you're slightly cracked. Verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Paul's planning a visit to Colossae, and he invites himself to stay at Philemon's house. Aphia can add another house guest to her busy schedule. And then verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And with these few personal greetings, Paul closes his letter to Philemon. But let me challenge us with a few closing thoughts. First, here's a question. What kind of friend are you? Are you a faithful friend? Are you a kemosabe in Christ? Or does friendship sound like too much hard work for you? I hope we all realize that when God called us to be his kids, though we may not have realized it at the time, he was also calling us to be brothers and sisters. And I have no doubt that in light of eternity, a brother is worth the bother. Let's cultivate good friendships. Let's take it seriously. Let's be deliberate and considerate and make our fellowship here at Calvary Chapel the best that it can be.